Hello, this is David Keel, and welcome to TNBS, the Thursday Night Bible Study. This study was held on September 23rd, 2010. Tonight we continue our study of the ninth chapter of Romans. So welcome again. This is TNBS, Volume 2, Session 22. Romans ninth chapter, we're going to pick it up at verse 19, where we left off last week. Last week we had talked about Paul's using several different examples from the Old Testament trying to illustrate the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. I mean, he has the right to, to do whatever he so desires to do. And he used the examples of uh, Isaac and Jacob and Esau and, and those examples of where God chose one over the other. And then we talked about Pharaoh and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and we talked about how I believe that was not a direct action of God it was most, mostly God just allowing Pharaoh's heart to become hardened by the choices that Pharaoh was making. And again, let me emphasize that I'm teaching these Romans and these verses from the Arminian standpoint of us having a free will and not from the Calvinist standpoint, which is that everything is predetermined and predestined and that we have no choice. Uh, that's just the way I believe, and, and so that's the way I'm going to teach it. That may agree or disagree with you. That's fine. Um, as I've said before, and I'm sorry Ben hadn't been able to be here because he was a kind of resident Calvinist. Uh, although I don't know where y'all guys stand. It doesn't make any difference as far as I'm concerned how you stand on that issue because we'll all be in heaven. <laughs> you know what? And I'm quite sure that God sometimes just sits there and goes, shakes his head at us and says, you know, y'all are arguing over some really stupid well, things. You know, <laughs> Why do you have theology at all? Guys, it's a relationship. <laughs> it's, it's not theology. You know, so, uh, but anyway, so, and, and tonight I'm going to do the same thing because we're going to run across verses 22 and 23 in this ninth chapter, which uh, are very, very strong Calvinist verses, but then there's also some verses later on we're going to run across, which I would like to say, okay, Calvinist, how do you explain that one? You know, so uh, it, it's it's not it's not an issue to become a a division among brethren, Christian brothers and sisters. It's just it's just not, or it should not be. It oftentimes is, but it should not be. So we're picking up the ninth chapter uh, with the nineteenth verse. You will save me to me then. Why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Now remember he has just said before that that God has mercy on whom he has mercy and he, has com he comforts whom he wants to comfort. And Paul is now saying, okay, if that's the case, then you may be asking the question, well, if God has mercy on who he pleases, then how can he blame us when we're refusing? Which to me is, is a, a difficult issue in Calvinism as far as I look at it. If, if, if some people are pre-chosen to become Christian and others are not, then you know why would those others suffer the wrath of God? Because they had no choice in the matter at all. So anyway, it's interesting that Paul never really answers this question, by the way. Uh, he doesn't give an answer when he says, well, okay, if this is the way it is, then how can we be blamed for resisting God? Doesn't say anything about it. He just goes on and says, well, he just simply says that in verse 20, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? And he's going to go into using the illustration of a potter. And he basically says, he says, listen, who are you to question the sovereignty of God? And that's what his whole point has been in all these verses. He's not trying to make necessarily a, a theological argument here for Calvinism or, or, or Arminianism, particularly when he's you know, 
500 years before either one of them lived, but <laughs> no, 1,100 years before either one of them lived. But what he's saying here is, who are we to question the sovereignty of God? Now, he's going to use the illustration of a potter and clay, which would be a very familiar illustration to the, to the people he's talking to, because that was a very popular illustration in the Jewish history. And you want to go back and read that. It's back in Jeremiah um, 18. Hmm. I know, I should have looked that up before now. I can't remember if it's Jeremiah 18 or Jeremiah 8. Jeremiah 18. It was Jeremiah 18, the first uh, six verses there. It talks about potter and the clay. If you look over in Isaiah, there's two references in Isaiah about the potter and the clay. And of course, in those illustrations, it's talking about the potter being God and the clay being Israel, the nation of Israel. Now, Paul here is talking more as an individual level than he is on a nation, national level. But reading what he says there, Verse 20, the thing moldy will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Okay? And so he's saying, man, we don't have the right to question the sovereignty of God. And I agree with that. We don't. God is sovereign. I mean, he's God. And we're not. (laughs) He's the creator, we are the created, and he has sovereign will over everything. As I said last week, in all this discussion about Pharaoh and and everything, at any point, God said, in fact, he still can at any point say, I've had enough, and he can end it, and he can end it very quickly, because he created all of this that we have, all of us, this world we live in, the universe that we're placed in, he created all of that, and he can destroy all of that. And it can be done just as quickly. He has that right. He is God. His sovereignty is, can, cannot be questioned. Now, God does entertain questions from us and concerns from us, as long as it's not dealing with his sovereignty. This, I think, this is what point Paul was making. If you remember when uh, Nicodemus came to Christ, Christ didn't say, don't question me. When he came with his questions, he sat and listened to him and, and talked to him about it and discussed it with him. When Thomas had his concerns in the upper room after the, re- after the resurrection of Christ, when you know the first time Christ was there and Thomas wasn't there, he says, I'm not going to believe until. Well, Christ didn't say, well, don't question me, you know. <laughs> he addressed those concerns of Thomas. So God doesn't have a problem with us with listening to our serious questioning and concerns. Because there are a lot of things we don't understand. And guys, there's going to be a lot of things that we will never understand. Again, because God is God. But when it comes to questioning his sovereignty, this is what the point Paul is making here. He says we cannot question his sovereignty. He is God. And he can choose to do what he pleases. Because he is God. Okay? So then he uses the example of the potter and the clay to, to, to illustrate his point. He says the potter can take a lump of clay, or two lumps of clay, or one lump of clay and divide it into two, however you want to look at it, and one of them he can shape into this beautiful, functional water jar. And the other one he can shape into a garbage can. Okay? That's the potter's prerogative. He is the potter. He is the one that's doing the creating. And he can make one clay something honorable, however you want to look at that, and he can make another hunk of clay into something that's not so honorable. A garbage can versus a water jar. The potter can do that. That is true. And, of course, in this illustration, Paul is trying to make the point that the potter is God and the clay is usens. You know, weans. Weans are the clay. And he's talking about the sovereignty of God. What he makes and creates 
is his choice, is not ours. And Paul is saying we shouldn't question what he chooses to make or not make because it is his choice. Now, what I want us to note, though, is that notice that these lumps of clay, they both are lumps of clay. They're both equal. And they both have been shaped by the potter's hand into something that the potter desired to create. And in my thinking, my belief, one may have a more honorable use as far as man is concerned. Man may place more honor upon a water jar than a garbage can. But I think God places the same value. If he creates the water jar, if he creates a garbage can, they are both his creation. They are both, if you want to carry the illustration, and in, in using the illustration is usually they, both, they are both children of God. They started out as equal lumps of clay. God made them into what he wanted to make them into, but I think they both are equally valued as far as God is concerned. Now, man may put different value on it. Man may say, I want the water jar, not the garbage can. But that's man's view. I look at it, as far as God is concerned, they are loved equally. Now, don't carry any illustration. I've said this before. You can't use any, any illustration and carry it too far. Uh, first of all, lumps of clay don't have minds to think. They don't have minds to reason like we do. They don't have minds to question like we do. So there's, there's a lot of things you cannot use this illustration to, to try to explain. But I think the point Paul is making here is the sovereignty of God. The, the potter has the right to create whatever he desires to create. But what I want us to see here is that, that that is true. God does have that right. He has the right to make He has the right to make Billy Grahams and he has the right to make David Keels. You know, both are proclaimers of the gospel, but on a whole different level, trust me, you know. One may be seen to be more honorable than the other. But God doesn't love Billy Graham any less than he loves me. <laughs> what? What did I say? Less than he loves me? No, I guess he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> that was just a little bit of um, <clears throat> yeah, a little, little Freudian slip there. Let me um. <laughs> right, it is. I mean, it's true. It's true. That's exactly right. Let me go see if I can make that correct statement correctly now. <laughs> God doesn't love me any less than he loves Billy Graham. Is that right? No. That's still backwards, isn't it? <coughs> Is that right? Okay. All right. God doesn't love me any less than he loves Billy Graham. We have different functions. We are made to do different things, but we have both been created and called by God to do different things. Now, what I need to do as David Keel or as the lump of clay here is not to question why he didn't make me a Billy Graham. That's not what I should do. That's not what we should do. What we should question is, God, what did you make me to do? Show me what you want me to do. And if you want me to be a garbage can, I'm going to be the daggum best garbage can I possibly can. Because that's what's going to bring glory to my Father. If that's what He's created me to do, then that's what I should do. Now, will it receive as much honor as a water jar? No. Will I ever receive as much honor and accolades as a Billy Graham? No. Because he didn't make me to receive those accolades of man. But it doesn't make any difference. Because I'm not seeking accolades of man. I should be doing what I feel called to do. Fulfilling the purpose for which God has created me 
to be and to do. That which he weaved me in my mother's womb to do. That's what I should be doing. And not question what he's called other people to do. Because that's what they're supposed to be doing. But I'm not loved any less, and I'm not any less valuable than anyone else. You're not any less valuable than anyone else. So, okay, the potter and the clay example. Verse 22 and 23. Now, here's where we get <laughs> this. In these two verses are, are, are often quoted in support of Calvinism and are used as, as, as oftentimes in, in, in support of that argument of predestination and predeterminism. Listen to what it says. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Okay? Pretty strong statements there. Now, the Calvinists will say right there, that's, that's almost your double predestination, as, as they claim. The first part in 22, he endured vessels that were prepared for destruction. They were predestined to never accept Christ. They were predestined for hell. And he placed mercy upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. They were predestined to accept Christ, and they were predestined to become children of God. And that's the double predestination which Calvinism teaches. Okay? Alright. My, and my notes has that in capital letters, underlined four times. My interpretation of these two verses. And let me again stress it. This is my interpretation. Don't take anything I ever teach and take it at face value. First of all, does it jive with Scripture? If I say something and the Holy Spirit is prompting you saying, that don't smell right or sound right or, you know, I don't think so. Well, then you go back to this, you go back to the scripture and you, you and the Holy Spirit together work through this. That's what you should be doing. Okay, so my interpretation of these scriptures. For those who choose to refuse the potter's hand, if you want to use this type of thing. And, and here you can't really make the, the connection between the vessels used in these verses, the vessels prepared for destruction and vessels prepared for glory, back to the potter's vessels. They're slightly different in my mind. Okay, But to carry that illustration forward, for those who choose to refuse the potter's hand and decide to live under their own power, they will live a life that is indeed being prepared for destruction. Okay? You hear what I said? For those who refuse Christ who basically uh, say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it my way. Whatever. You know, I won't start singing, trust me. For those who decide I'm going to do it my way, you know, I, I, I want nothing to do with God, I'm going to do it my way. Well, if they continue down that path, their life is being prepared for destruction. It really is. Look at Romans, first chapter. Flip back to the first chapter, the 28th verse. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, that's who I'm talking about here, those who don't acknowledge God, who decide to live under their own power and, and, and who decide to exercise their own will, okay, they refuse to accept God. 
Those who, who no longer saw fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And then he goes through verses 29, 30, and 31. So it lists some 23 things which those who have chosen to ignore God, who have chosen to turn away from God, this is what their life is going to be like. It will be filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, envy, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unmerciful. Well, that pretty much means, in my thinking, they're leading the life that's being prepared for destruction, you know. And although they know the ordinance of God, those and those who practice such things are worthy of death. Okay? So that's how I interpret that phrase when Paul says over in, in, in chapter 9, 22, and we're going to talk about in just a minute about God withholding His wrath. He endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Okay? One interpretation I read, which I think was interesting, he, he basically claimed to be more from a Calvinist bend, but he did not believe in, pre, in double predestination. He basically said God chose those who were going to be saved and predestined them for glory, and he just left the others alone. And because of their choosing and their lifestyle, they, were, they, they went to hell. They were leading them to destruction, which is what this verse is saying. That's basically what I'm saying, too. They refused God. They decided to live for themselves, to live under their own power, to live under their own knowledge, under their own wisdom, which Paul talks all about that in, those, in that first chapter of Romans. He says, and then their lives are being prepared for destruction. Now, the second part of this. And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. But for those who choose to allow the potter to make them into vessels that he desires, those who choose to accept Christ, those who choose to yield their life to the power of God and his will, those who choose to subjugate their will to God's will, those who choose to place God first, those who choose to accept the grace, mercy, and forgiveness, righteousness, and justification that God offers through His death of His Son. Okay? Those who choose to do that, in my thinking. Those who allow the potter, using Paul's example here, to shape their lives into whatever he desi- whatever the potter desires for them to be. Which, by the way, will also be the thing that will give them the greatest joy will also give, give them the greatest purpose, will also give them the greatest fulfillment, will also give them abundant life, John 10.10. 10. That's the way you acquire that, is by yielding to the potter and allowing him to shape your life into what he desires because he will shape it into that which is the absolutely best for you. Those who choose to do that then these vessels are vessels of glory that God prepares for glory before they are actually received it. Now by that I mean, these are vessels which God will start to prepare for the glory which we will receive in eternal life. The glory that we will receive when we pass off away from this physical life that we're in. Which by the way, if you go back and look at Romans 8, 29, and 30, he's predestined these, he called whom he called, he also glorified, uh, excuse me, 29, for he foreknew who he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Remember we talked about that? And if you go back and look, I think, in the 
sixth chapter of Romans, Paul talks about this fact that God, that Christ died on the cross and was resurrected into eternal glory. We, through our baptism, are associated with that death, burial, and resurrection of Christ into eternal glory, a glory which we, which we will receive. The full glory of Christ that we inherit as being sons of God, as being joint heirs with Christ, as he talks about in, in the sixth chapter, we will receive that glory fully when we are with him in eternity. Now, we receive it partially now, but we will receive it fully when we're with him in eternity. So those who have chosen, am I thinking, who make the free will choice to accept Jesus Christ as Savior, they will indeed be vessels of glory that God will prepare beforehand for glory. You understand what I'm saying? He is shaping my life now. He is trying His best. The Holy Spirit is trying His best to conform me to the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's what He's doing with all of us. He's trying to conform us into His will, into His likeness of His Son. He is preparing us for the glory that we're going to receive. And He's preparing us beforehand, before we actually receive it fully. Okay. So you're saying, okay, David, you're playing with words. Maybe I am, guys. Maybe I am. But that's the way I look at those verses. I think it makes more sense. It go, it, that makes more sense as far as the other. It goes, I think, it's more together with the Scripture. I mean, when it says... Uh, Amanda, it, it makes more sense to me. But uh, there again, I'm looking at it from an Armenian standpoint of, of free will. Oh, you know. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it makes more sense to us. But yeah, but I just... Overall, based, not just one or two yeah. specific. Yeah, I agree. Exactly. I feel that, you know, it does, and and one of the issues which some are people who have the Ar- Armenian bend versus Calvinist bend. One of the things we have to realize, I think, even if, if we don't believe in, if we do believe in us having a choice, the Calvinists will say, then you are giving yourself too much credit. You know, they're saying that you are actually think that you're in control of your salvation. No, I'm not. I'm not. I don't deserve any of this. That's the whole key. And of course, the Calvinists claim they don't deserve it. They, no one deserves it, which no one does. You know, our righteousness, our righteousness is as filthy rags, as it says. And if you really want to know what that word in Hebrew really means, look up the definition of that word when it says filthy rags, because it's a very vivid description of exactly what they're talking about. And it is a, a very vivid description of what he means when he says filthy. When you take our righteousness and compare it to God's righteousness, it's a very descriptive term, which I won't get into because it's a little gross. But anyway, <laughs> but you're right, you know. And they say that you know we're all alike like that, and we don't deserve it. And I don't, but I still think it is my choice to make. That's just the way I feel about it. One thing I've always said is that. Once you're saved, you cannot be plucked from my hand. Mm-hmm. And I think that basically is saying that, hey, once once you get saved, you're still in blood in my name. There's nothing anybody can do to change that. That's right. But basically what I'm saying is like, you know, I think that once you're saved, you're saved for good because you can choose how you want to live. You can choose not to live for God. Mm-hmm. And 
that that would really hurt him, and the fellowship will be broken. But that doesn't take away the fact you're still saved. Yeah, and the, and, uh, and the only question I think sometimes we need to ask Taylor is, particularly when we look at our own lives, is if we have truly entered into a sacrificial relationship with Christ, and we have sacrificed our will for His will, yeah. then that should have some type of influence and some type of effect on, on how we live. Yes, it yeah, it really should. But you're, you're right. And, and Amanda, like you said, that's the way I, I, I interpret those verses. And it, it's, it's a matter of semantics in a lot of ways. Yeah, he does say predestined. In fact, the, the, the verb there used when it says prepares, it comes from the same root as predestined for glory. And well, I mean, he already knew it because he, he already he knows. The foreknowledge thing to me I don't have a problem with because, you know, God is, God is timeless. You know, past, present, future is all now for him. He made all of us, and he made one group. He knew we were all going to heaven, and he made another group that he already knew he was making them for hell. That kind of even defeats the point of having a relationship with us. Why did he make them at all? Because when he already he made them for hell, I mean, that makes no sense. Why make them at all? Exactly. <laughs> See, that, I mean, why would God create somebody? Just say, I'm going to create you. Oh, and by the way, you're going to hell. Yeah. But, going back to our first point tonight. Who are we to question the sovereignty of God? Good point. You know? So, um, but anyway, that's, that's the way I look at those, those two particular verses. Anyway, so he does, like I said, he does prepare us for glory that we have not yet received. And just as God makes known the riches of his glory upon the vessel that turn to him in faith and who yield to him and who are pliable, so to speak, to the potter's hands, will allow God to, to have his way in their lives. God also endures with much patience those that have refused him. And the Greek word there is macrothemia. Uh, and and we've, we've talked about those two Greek words quite a bit, patience and endurance. One is a macrothemia, and the other is hupomone. And the hupomone means, which, in fact, I was teaching that this morning when I was teaching the, the senior adult Bible study in 1 Timothy in the 6th chapter. He uses the word hupomone, perseverance under circumstances and situations. To persevere, to, to remain under is what the actual Greek word means. Here, Paul is using the word macrothemia, which means to, to have patience with people, not circumstances. It's, it's two different Greek words. And so what he's saying here is this, God pours out his glory upon those vessels of glory, which he is preparing for glory those vessels which have chosen to receive His glory, those vessels who have chosen to accept His, his gift of salvation. And He pours out His glory upon them. The ones that have refused Him that are being prepared for destruction, He is, has great patience with. And as that verse says, what God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endures with much patience. I mean, God could wipe them out with a snap of His fingers. But He doesn't, and He hasn't yet. <laughs> no guarantee about tomorrow, guys. I hate to tell you. you know, he hasn't yet. He is still showing great patience with those that have refused him. He is still preparing us for glory, but he's showing great patience for those who have refused him. And he has the power, and he certainly has the ability to just say, enough's enough. But he hasn't yet. He has his macrothemia. He has great patience and endurance with them. The Greek word there, like I said, macrothemia, it means self-restraint before acting. The quality of a person who is able to avenge himself 
yet refrains from doing so. This is what that Greek word actually means. Someone who has the power and the ability to avenge themselves, but they so far have refrained from doing so. That's what that Greek word is, is intending there. And this is what Paul is saying God is doing with those that have refused him. He certainly has the power and the ability to avenge himself, but he has chosen to restrain himself. Now, why does God show Macrothemia toward those that reject him? I think it's to give as many as possible the opportunity to come to know him. Look at 2 Peter. 2 Peter 3, 9. Second uh, Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness. Remember, He's timeless. But is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Emphasis on the word any and all. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That is why I think God is showing great macrothemia toward those that have rejected Him. Great patience and endurance with them. Because He doesn't want any to perish. He desires all to come to repentance. And He's delaying giving as many as possible the opportunity to come to know Him. Now that's a difficult verse for Calvinists, I hate to tell you. <laughs> now the way they explain that verse, He does not wish for any to perish that have been called and predestined to come to know Him. Okay? That's where they would interpret that verse. Which, okay, that's their interpretation. It's like the way I just interpret these other two in the more of an Arminian standpoint, you know? Uh, but that's what they're saying. They're saying that that verse is referring to those that are predestined. The Lord is not slow. is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all who have been called to come to know Him. You know, all that have been predestined to come to know Him. That's the way they would interpret that verse. That's the all that these Peter is talking about there. When he says all, he's not talking about all. He's talking about just those that have been predestined. Okay, that's, you can interpret it that way. You certainly could. The same way that I just interpreted these other two verses, which Calvinists claim very strongly from more of an Arminian standpoint. Okay? All right, you see, you see where I'm coming from, guys? These, these scriptures are, are, I told you from the very beginning, this is a very difficult book at times. And particularly this section of Paul's theology which he's expressing here. And, and there are, we're going to stumble across some more that even get, I mean, are just going to be just as difficult, particularly get in the 11th chapter when he starts talking about the eternal fate of the Jews. There's some difficult things here. And we can discuss, I won't argue, I've told you all that before, I'll discuss with anybody, I won't argue with anybody though. We can discuss this ad nauseum and really not reach a conclusion. There's a conclusion to reach. There isn't. You're right. You're trying to fit God into a nice neat box. You're trying to fit God into a box. You're trying to take the infinite and put it into a into a defined mind. You know, and you can't do it. Yeah, you can't do it. You can't do it. God is sovereign. Okay, reading on. Uh, yeah, what verse are we? In? Well, verse twenty-four. I'm sorry. <laughs> Even us whom he also called, not from among the Jews, but also from among Gentiles, and this promise of his glory out of his glory is not restricted just to the Jews but also to anyone who accepts his call to repentance and accepts his son's payment for their sins. Basically this is the point Paul is making. Remember he's writing primarily to the Jews at this point of his letter. The Jews that are in the church at Rome who felt this high privilege of being the chosen people and we've talked about that before. They had the law. They were the chosen people. They thought they had the, the hall passed from God's wrath because of that. And he's saying no, 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 no. Everyone is guilty. All have sinned. All fall short. 
penalty of sin is death. All are subject to death penalty. And he says, and the Gentiles are not excluded. God has called people other than just Jews. That was God's plan all along. His plan all along, as, as one commentator has described it, was that he was going to take the Jewish nation as a chosen people to have this special relationship with him. He was going to reveal himself to that nation through the law as to this is what I desire for my people to be like. Then he was going to provide a Savior in Jesus Christ who was going to be a Jew, and then they were to take that salvation and share it with the rest of the world. Salvation was to be all to all of the world. But God so loved the world. He didn't love just the Jews. His initial relationship was with the Jews. But his plan all along was to include all mankind. And that's what Paul, that's the point Paul is making here. He said he also called not from among the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And he quotes two verses from Hosea. Hosea 2.23 and 1.10. I will call those who were not my people my people, and her who was not beloved beloved. And it shall be that in the place where the, it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. And basically he's saying, he says he's using this to support his argument that God will call others than just the Jews. His call is to those who are called his people, the Jews, but also that are, are not called by his name, the Gentiles or the non-Jews. And he quotes these two verses from Hosea to make that point. Reading on in 27 through 29, he goes on and talks about, he said, but now wait a minute, the Jews aren't excluded now. It's not that God's not going to call the Jews anymore. He's not just calling Gentiles. And he quotes from Isaiah, two verses from Isaiah, 10:23 and 1:9, When he says, there will be a remnant, a remnant, a remnant, I think it's one of too many slobbles in that word. <laughs> there will be a remnant of people chosen from the Jews. The, the gospel was preached to all the Jews. Uh, they were the ones, to both Jew and Gentile. The gospel had been preached to both Jew and Gentile. But much more, many more Gentiles had accepted the gospel than Jews. They did not have the law, and, you know, but, but they accepted it more freely than the Jews did. But now Paul was saying... The Jews have not been left out. God also called the Jews, but only some have accepted. Only a partial, a few of the Jews, actually in comparison, only a few of the Jews had accepted. And this is the point he's making here in Isaiah. So there will be that remnant that is chosen from the Jewish nation. What happens to the rest of the Jewish nation? You'll get into that in chapter 11. We'll talk about that. But then reading on down in, in 30 through 33, which actually should be a part of chapter 10, if you want to know the truth. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to probably stop there. I'm going to think I'll probably stop at verse 29, because that really, uh, 30 is really beginning another, another thought that Paul has when it comes to the Jews. So, um, so we'll, we'll stop there. He, he talks about the great paradox uh, between the Jews and the Gentiles and receiving Christ. So, what Paul has been talking about here. He's gone back and says that we as man should not question the sovereignty of God, and we shouldn't. God is sovereign. God is God, and we're not. And I think sometimes we forget that. <laughs> God is sovereign, and we should not to question that. He uses the illustration of the potter and the clay, and that how some people are called to greatness, and I use that term in human terms. Some people are called to greatness in human terms, and some people are not. Some are made of vessels of honor in human terms, and some are made in less honor. But as far as God is concerned, He made them both. He has a purpose for both. He loves them both equally. They are valuable to Him equally. 
those that have refused God, continue to refuse God, they are living a life that is being prepared for destruction. It is being prepared for hell. Those that have chosen God, have accepted His gift, free gift of salvation through His death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ, who have been justified, sanctified, righteous, all those terms, then those are vessels which He has poured out His glory upon, and He is preparing them for eternal glory. And He has called not just the Jews. His call is to all mankind, Jew and Gentile as the verses in Hosea illustrate. But the Jews haven't been left out either. It's not like God has given up on the Jews and is now just calling Gentiles. The call is still for all mankind. But it is my belief that it is our choice. We have the right to choose or refuse to allow the potter to shape our lives. We don't deserve the potter even having anything to do with us. But since he does desire to mold and shape our lives, he will not do that without us accepting and allowing him to. And that, to me, is only because of his grace. Because he certainly, he certainly doesn't have to give us that choice. He certainly doesn't have to give us that right. But I feel that he does. So it boils down to this. What are we going to choose? Are we going to be vessels of glory or are we going to be vessels for being prepared for destruction? And what are we going to allow the potter to do in our lives? What are we going to allow the potter to do with our lives? That's the bottom line. Pray with me. Father, the great potter. Lord, it, it, it constantly blows my mind that you would even care about me. The fact that you desire to work in and through my life, that, that's, that's just unbelievable. But I'm so grateful that you are because that is the only way, Father, that is the only way that I am ever going to know the fullness and the abundance of life. Life to its fullest. Life filled with the joy and the hope that I have in you. Because I don't have the smarts to do it on my own. I thank you, Father. I praise you for what you do in and through my life every day. And I ask you to forgive me when I become stiff and resistant to your molding hands. Forgive me, Father, when I, when I get too smart for my own britches <laughs> and think I know better. And thank you for taking me back, dusting me off, and going back to shaping me into what I should be. Father, may this week be a week that we try desperately to be moldable to your will. For this is my prayer, in and through the name of Jesus Christ.
your Son, my Savior and my Lord, and my very bestest friend. Amen and amen. I want to thank you for joining us for the study tonight, and I hope you have been enjoying this study as we work our way through Romans. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email. My address is davidlkeel at gmail.com. And I hope you'll be able to join us next week as we continue on our study looking at the last few verses of the ninth chapter and on into the tenth chapter of Romans. Until then, it is my prayer that as we go through this week, may we indeed remain moldable in the hands of the potter. God bless you.